please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. In the, the, gospel, or the book of Romans, the Gospel is, is central. He starts by saying he's not ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. For in it, a righteousness that is, is revealed that's from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's theme is that righteousness and salvation from God come through faith as a gift, not as something that we perform or achieve. And we've seen that grace has an answer comprehensively for all of our human condition marred by sin, and that it has brought us peace with God, reconciliation and hope. But at the same time, we have this question, well, if the Gospel is the power of God, and if grace is the answer for our sin, why does it seem that it's not more effective than it is? Why is Israel, the Jewish people, who were at the day, many uh, were opposed to the Gospel. Many were resisting Christianity. Why do you see so much rebellion in the Old Testament, in, in Israel, if they were the chosen people who received grace? And Paul's answering that question in, in 9, 10, 11. And while that may feel to some of us a bit maybe academic, it's about historical events rather than particularly about us, what it does is reveal to us who God is and what He is like. And the truth is, when we read about the Israel that He's describing, we're reading about people who are just like us. And so we're not just learning about what God is like, we're learning about what we are like and how God's grace and kindness comes to deal with us in particular. So, with that said, I want you to listen to Romans 11. We're going to read ten verses and see how God's grace was at work in Israel so that we can hear how God's grace was at work and is at work in us. But before we read it, let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you bless the reading of your word and make the study of it effective for our souls Above all, what we ask is that Your Spirit would work, that He would hide in our hearts Your Word, that we might turn from sin and be faithful to You. We pray that as we hear of Your grace, it would fill our hearts with confidence that You have brought that grace to us and that we can believe it and that it is ours in in the name of Christ Jesus. We ask You for the blessing of, of Your Spirit upon Your Word for our sakes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know that uh, what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear 
down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and in retribution for them, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is God's Word. It is completely true and is utterly trustworthy. Uh, a woman named Kathy Moore was uh, uh, a foster parent involved in the foster uh, child a system for uh, a lengthy time, both having children in her home and helping to administer the system uh, for the agency that oversaw in her area. In eight years, now she was one of the foster parents that only had temporary children. In eight years, she had 35 children come through her home. And uh, when she recounts some of the, the history and, and how that turned out, she mentions in particular two uh, children, a five-year-old and a six-year-old, sister and brother, uh, whom uh, she wouldn't name publicly to protect their privacy. But she called them Dick and Jane. She told their story. They had uh, been in several homes, and they were uh, reaching the point at which their biological parents' rights were being terminated. And they were in a particular foster family uh, that just had these two children, no other children, and they were about to go on a four-week vacation, and they applied for respite foster care. That's where a child who's in foster care goes to another foster family temporarily before they come back. And uh, they had requested that the two children would be sent to separate homes for four weeks because they felt like that, that was what was necessary, and the agency agreed. Kathy Moore was one of those families. She got Jane. Jane was five years old at the time and living there, and she didn't see anything other than some of the ordinary things that come with foster children that would warrant separating the siblings, but she also had the wisdom to know that four weeks alone doesn't prove anything. So it wasn't long before they were sent back, and things were still so troubling that these parents decided they could no longer keep them. Uh, the foster that, that happens so frequently in foster care that there's a term for it. It's called placement disruption. The two children were taken from these foster parents and begged Kathy Moore and her family to take them. And she said, on the one condition, I get them both. She brought them both in, and what she saw was what the first parents saw, and she said the next nine months were nightmarish. These children had learned some behavior from parents, from their traumas, from things that made them manipulative and destructive, particularly with each other. And it was highlighted by their living in that home. Kathy Moore and her husband had two children who were the same ages, and it was a difficult nine months. And as uh, they were getting close to the end of the term, it was because the agency had finally found a family who would take them for permanent adoption, and the two children were whisked away abruptly and brought into this other family's home. That lasted for four days before the adoptive family said, not for us. Again, placement disruption. It's a clinical term, but it's trauma for children. And they were brought back to Kathy Moore's house. And she said, I'll take them again on one condition. You've got to let me in on helping find the next adoptive family. And you've got to let us be part of planning the transition. And so the agency agreed. And they found a family who was willing to adopt them with four miles away, same school district. It would minimize the transition. But instead of just saying, okay, that's your new home, and hands off, 
They were introduced to the family for just a short time, and then over the next six weeks, gradually spent more and more time with them until they had spent enough time that they were ready to move to the house. And they knew the house they were going to, and they knew the people. And then they were invited back to the Moore's house for sleepovers and, and time spent. And as these two children grew up, they never broke that connection. More children came in and out of the Moore's house, but they stayed with Dick and Jane on regular occasions. When Jane's behavior began to get worse as she got older and in high school, as they felt some of that you know, rebellion that's aggravated by her childhood experiences, four parents now were involved. Four parents were having, helping each other and working together and saying to Jane, we're not going to give up on you. Dick had his own problems. But they said the same thing. This foster, former foster father would go to his parent-teacher meetings to say, I'll be here at every point. And they were just determined to love these troubled children into health. Now, when the story that I'm telling you was written, Dick had gone to college, graduated, had gotten married and was raising a family of his own. Jane is in counseling and still wrestling with what she can do and how to be healthy. But they're committed. And that, in some ways, is a story that's so beautiful. You find so few of them in our culture where people say, I found the troubled person and I'm going to stick with them until they're well. And, and you don't find it in culture so much because we're just not good at that kind of thing. There's something wrong with us about that. Because that's the way God is. God says, I have grace for the stubbornly troubled, broken person. And it's an overwhelming, overcoming grace. And I will stick with you and I will love you until you are well. And that's what's happening here in Romans 11. We've, we've been looking at how the, the people of Israel were stubborn in their rebellion. They were resisting God. The last words of, of chapter 10 were, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We find that they are really stubborn and really stiff-necked and really rebellious against God. And they won't give in. And so how does God respond Chapter 11 says he responds with more grace. First question is, if, is that uh, Paul here is asking or anticipating, people would ask, is has God rejected his people? Now Paul knows that's a question people would ask because his normal method was that when he would go to a new town to start talking about Jesus, the first place he would go was the synagogue where the Jews were gathered and there he would reason with them from the Scriptures. And as he reasoned with them, he would hear them say, yeah, but what about this? But what about this? If that's true, what does this mean? He had heard the objections, and so he knows what they're going to ask. Has God rejected his people? And his answer is no. No, he hasn't. And I'll prove it to you. God has always maintained what the Bible calls a remnant of Jewish people. Always. 
that these stubborn people who refused to believe in God, that in the midst of their stubborn refusal, God had always had mercy on a chunk of them so that he would say, you could see, he had never given up. He says, look at me first. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. His credentials as a Jewish person are uh, unqualified. They, they are absolute and sure. He says, I'm Jewish. But I want you to remember Paul's history. It's not just that he was a typical Jew. He was a Pharisee. And he was a persecutor of the church. He was uh, intensely Jewish. He was Jewish with a capital J-E-W. He was the guy he thought all Jews should be. And he had overseen even executions of those who were Christians. He had sent papers to arrest and persecute with the authority of the temple those who had come to Christ. He was, or he at least had, as many obstacles to keep him from faith in Christ and the mercy of God as anyone else. And here he is saying, I have grace. God has not given up on our people because we were stubborn. He got me. He says, it's not just me. Remember Elijah? In verse 2, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. Elijah had just seen God send fire down from heaven and consume a, 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 a sacrifice to demonstrate in front of all the people, and nothing had changed. The king and his wife Jezebel were against him and threatening his life, and he had gone into hiding. And he was simply depressed and even angry with God. God, why won't you change things? I have done everything you have asked me, and now I'm the only one who's left. Israel hates you. They kill your prophets. They run from you. And no one in all of Israel except me trusts you anymore. And God says, Elijah, you don't know anything. 7,000 in the midst of those who hate me love me. 7,000 are faithful. Now that number isn't the important point. The important point was this. In the midst of Israel, when it was hip and cool and cultural to dislike God, to run from Him, to kill His prophets, do anything they could to oppose Him, God had, had mercy on 7,000 who were just as stubborn. And then He says, verse 5, So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Keep in mind that at the present time there were those who were trying to squash the church and put it out. But he says, here are those who are Jewish going, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. They were believing. And that has been true since uh, Paul wrote these words. Today, 2013, at this present time, there are a remnant of Jews who believe and who are trusting in the Lord Jesus. And Now keep in mind, if you were to come across someone who is Jewish, would you expect them on just ordinary expectation that they're going to be really open to the gospel? And to you telling them your thousands of year old religion has been fulfilled and you need to change? Or do they tend to be hostile? They're still hostile. 
but God is still having mercy. Their hostility, their stubborn hostility, their stubborn rejection of Jesus, God overcomes with grace. Now, here's why you need to know that. Not because we want to like Jewish people. I hope you do. But the reason you know this is because you and I are stubborn. And the same hostility and the same rejection that he described in himself and in the remnant and in those who are being converted in his day, you and I have. We are naturally enemies of God and opposed to him and we are stubborn in our rebellion and God's grace overcomes it. He says this, if it's by grace, it cannot be. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You know, here's the way we tend to think. People who are living in sin and rebelling against God, if they will just kind of clean up their act a little bit and come in and we can help them get started. You've got to fix a few things first. But that's not what the Gospel says. The Gospel says it's not by works. It's not by fixing yourself up. It is by grace that comes to the stubborn, to those who are self-determined and overwhelms them. And here's the beautiful thing. The big problem the Jews had were not their wild immoralities. It was that they wanted to be self-made righteous people. They wanted to perform the law and do the religious things and then present themselves to God having achieved righteousness. And Paul says, listen, Grace obliterates that way. Just as it overcomes opposition, it overcomes this works righteousness. It takes that road that says, walk this way, follow the law, and be righteous. And it puts a roadblock there. It says, turn around and go the way of grace. Go the way of receiving a gift. Grace alone is the only way to true righteousness, to true acceptance by God. It teaches us not to rely on ourselves. It teaches us not to look at our religious works and think that there's somehow a credit for us. Um, my wife and I, we've gotten into uh, watching an old NBC TV show, The West Wing. And it it's, uh, was set, you know, with, um, uh, well, the president and his staff and a lot of drama that unfolds with that. And, at the end of season two, which is where we just got, feel free to catch up with us. It's on Netflix. Uh, the Martin Sheen plays President Josiah Bartlett, and his trusted secretary was killed in a car accident. There's trouble all around him. He's about to uh, be uh, brought up on charges of conspiracy. He doesn't think he's guilty, and he's angry. And he's in the, the, the cathedral where they'd had the funeral for his secretary. And he tells everyone else to leave and he walks down the aisle and he is shouting and spitting mad at God. And he lists his resume. You know, five million new jobs. A, a compassionate man on the Supreme Court. He goes on and on about all of his accomplishments that are good for the country. And he says, don't you think that would have bought me a little bit of kindness, a little bit of mercy? You understand that that same attitude is in you and me. 
that we think our works are what buy us grace. I'll be good enough to get you to give me the rest. But Paul says it can't work that way. Grace comes out to those works and pays over them all. That there is only grace. So that you don't trust in your works, in your religious performance. You don't trust in those things at all. This doesn't mean you don't do them, but that you don't do them as a way to earn anything. You be religious, you do good works, you do things that are obedient to the law because you are already accepted by grace. And the only reason you have to do those things is because you think God is worthy of them. There is no other reason. Grace overcomes our opposition, overcomes our works, and then it overcomes our stumbling. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They were looking for righteousness. They went in the wrong direction. The elect obtained it. The remnant obtained it. But the rest were hardened. What happened to those who went in the wrong direction? What happened to those who wanted a self-righteousness? What happened to the Jews who rejected grace as a gift through faith? Here's what happens. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Quite literally, they became stupid. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. They became blind and deaf down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. You know, a table is the place where you sit down and eat and have your company. What happens when your table is a snare and a trap? Your whole life is filled with trouble. And David says, here's what's happened to the people who've rejected God. They've gotten retribution, what they deserve. They've gotten hardening of their hearts, a blinding of their eyes. Their ears have become more deaf. They've become more stubborn. You see, it's not that we're all neutral, waiting to see who's going to win out. Will grace win out or will you know sin win out? We're not living here... You are always in progress. You're always making your way to one destination or another. Either the destination which is toward Christ or the destination that's away from Him. You're always moving. And when these rejected God and they took their first steps toward self and away from God, they got more stubborn. And their hearts became harder. It is the natural judgment. It's, it's the judgment that you have when you sleep late. And then you have more work to do before lunch because you slept late and you feel stressed. You know, it's the natural judgment. It's just the ordinary consequences. The person who stubbornly refuses God doesn't get happier and softer. They become more and more and more stubborn. They stumble, they fall, and they get harder. I want you to read verse 11 with me, one we haven't read yet. So did I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Did they stumble and get harder so they couldn't be reached? His answer is no. No, there is a grace that is stronger than their stubbornness. The path they were walking on leads to harder hearts and to judgment from God, but it does not lead to a a distance that's so beyond God that they can't be recovered. 
the grace of God can overcome the most stubborn and hard hearts. That the ones who are most unable to turn can be changed. We need that. Because you know those stubborn sins that are in your heart that you wish weren't there and you can't seem to let go of them. Hear God say, you are not too stubborn for me to not break your grip on those. If you are here today and you have heard the gospel a lot but you've never really trusted in it, I want you to hear you are not too far from God that today you cannot come to Him. If you look back on your life and you say, but you don't know what I've done, I want you to know that no matter what you have done in your past, no matter what makes you feel guilty or shame, you are not too far from God's grace. It does not matter how hard our hearts get, God is able to renew us and rescue us. And if you are even beginning to think, maybe I could trust Him, that is God's grace already drawing you. Come with it. Believe it. Submit to it. His grace is sufficient to bring you all the way to godliness and to Christ-likeness. That's the good news. That's what you see God doing in the midst of Israel, though they were so stubborn. And when, when you and I are living in the midst of stubbornness and when it's in our own hearts, God's grace is enough. He can bring us from where you are, broken and wrecked by sin, to where He wants you to be. There's a, a great story. I know you all know this one. I've never told it, but you know it. The story is Derek Redmond. He was a British athlete who was uh, a world-class racer in the 400 meters. He had won world championship in the 400 meters. And, of course, you know, world championship's great. It means you're the best in the world that year. But the thing every athlete that's in kind of track and field wants is the Olympic gold. And he was favored in the 1992 Barcelona uh, Olympics to medal at least and possibly win. And in the very first uh, set of heats, he had the fastest time of anyone there. In the quarterfinal, he'd won his race. In the semifinal, he'd gotten about halfway through the race and seemed to be doing pretty well when he tore his hamstring on the back stretch and collapsed on the race. And he just sat on his knees. And you could see the frustration and the disappointment wash over him. And he finally lay on his back. And the trainers came out to help him and he shooed them away and he got back up and he began to hop on one foot trying to finish the 400 meter race. And as he was going, it wasn't clear whether he would fully make it. He was in tons of pain. And that's when a, a man significantly wider than the racer uh, broke, literally shoved the security guards out of the way. It was Derek Redmond's father, Jim. And Jim got up to him, and he put his son's arm around his shoulder and carried him, as it were, to the finish line. And... You know, the rules of the race, you got helped. It, in, the, in the record book, it reads, did not finish. But there were 65,000 fans and, and uh, people who were watching it, and none of them will say he didn't finish. They rose to their feet and they applauded because they could tell that was a great story developing. Listen, 
you're part of a much better story. You didn't just kind of tear your hamstring and say, but I want to finish. You were going in the wrong direction. You were trying to win a race on your own and you were running the wrong way on the track. And God, your Father, came to you and said, here, let me help. And He turned you around and He has carried you all the way and He will carry you by His grace to the finish. That's what the Gospel is. You can believe that. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we need that kind of help. We need the grace that overcomes our weakness, that overcomes our torn hamstrings, that overcomes everything that's wrong with us, our inability, but also overcomes our stubbornness. When you came to me and I was going the wrong way, I wanted you to help me keep going the wrong way. But you are persistent in your grace. And you have turned us around. Now help us trust in you to carry us to the finish by grace and by grace alone. May your grace overwhelm and overcome us in this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.